Southeast Radio's Morning Mix. Chat, news and your views. Good morning, Alan, and good morning to your listeners. In fact, we we had just gone out of government. We had been in government for the five years up to June of 97, so certainly all the preparatory work that was being done in relation to uh, Good Friday. But we had gone out and the the new Fianna Fáil uh, administration had come in and Bertie was Taoiseach. And he did a great job of carrying the negotiations over the line on this day 25 years ago. Brendan, the significance of the day, how would you summarise the significance of this day of days, this 25th anniversary? Extraordinarily significant. Um, we had, we had uh, been working for a very long time on trying uh, to secure a settlement after uh, decades of uh, terrible bloodshed terrible suffering, three and a half thousand people murdered uh, during that period and there was a hope. I remember in 1992, immediately after the 92 election, uh, Albert Reynolds and Dick Spring met and I actually was outside the door, myself uh, and a couple of other Labour Party people and a couple of Fianna Fáil people uh, and Albert talked to Dick about the possibility of peace Nobody was thinking at the time that there could be a negotiated settlement. And it was one of the decisive issues that brought Labour into, into that government in '92, because, quite frankly, nobody believed that Labour and Fianna Fáil would enter government in '92. And Dick came out and he said, there is a real prospect, if we work at it, that we can actually have a peace settlement on this island. And there was very, very many ups and downs in the intervening period. The ceasefire of '94 that you remember... Uh, then that ceasefire was interrupted on many occasions. I remember being actually holding a clinic in Murphy Flood's hotel in Enniscorthy when the Canary Wharf bomb went off and uh, I, got a, I got a call immediately. Um, the, there was an emergency cabinet meeting and I was summoned back to Dublin to see how we would hold things together. Uh, real negotiations begun in '96. I remember. Uh, and again... They were torturously difficult because you're bringing almost irreconcilable differences to a table and trying to bring it to a conclusion. Um, We went out of government, as I say, after the June 96 election. And I think the involvement of the United States in the last lap was really critical. Bill Clinton being president of the United States was an enormous help Uh, and then sending George Mitchell as his peace envoy, somebody with enormous patience and skill that brokered the final hurdle. But on this day, 25 years ago, I think there was grave anxiety that this might actually fall apart because George Mitchell had made it clear he wasn't going to... He was a man of infinite patience, but it it was decision time. And if, if a settlement hadn't been arrived at, he was going back to America um, for Easter and he was going on, on Easter Saturday. So it, it was basically the last day and I remember those of us, I was on the outside at this stage looking in, were terribly anxious because people were optimistic first thing that Good Friday morning 25 years ago. But I think the mood actually changed during the morning and people became more pessimistic I remember the images coming from the talks. You had uh, Ian Paisley outside screaming um, abuse at everybody and anybody involved. 
you had enormous pressure on David Trimble and on the Ulster Unionist Party uh, from that source and from his own community. You had no decommissioning, and that was one of the things he was pushing desperately for, to have decommissioning of arms before he entered a power-sharing agreement. Uh, and, of course, the fear that uh, those negotiating for the Republican side, Jerry Adams, Martin McGuinness, couldn't bring all the violent men across the line and that um, whatever was agreed might well fall apart. And there was great challenges to that. You'll recall only a few months later you had the Omar bomb, the most serious, and I remember that day viscerally because that was the most terrible carnage. Uh, but people held their nerve and yeah. peace uh, of a form because there's been many um, uh, difficulties along the last 25 difficult years, but peace in its essence has held. All right. Um, the agreement was made between the British and the Irish governments and eight political parties or groupings. Quite Because like we all of a sudden went from seeing Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley on the complete opposite side of the fence, eventually... They seemed to form a great bond and a great friendship. Well, that was years later. Um, remember, Ian Paisley uh, and the DUP did not sign up <coughs> to the Good Friday Agreement 25 years ago. They opposed it, and they opposed the referendum um, in the North uh, to ratify the agreement. Uh, but they, again, in, a, in, in I, I think, I suppose, an act of courage, um, did cross that barrier and brought their own DUP community with them into a peace agreement. But I remember Seamus Mallon, a man whom I have great time for, um, on the 10th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, saying, yes, peace was won, but at a cost politically, because his party, the SDLP, and David Trimble's party, the UUP, have been totally marginalised and replaced by the more extreme versions of nationalism uh, and the more extreme versions of unionism who are now the dominant political forces in Northern Ireland. Uh, There's so many people we could mention, but can I mention one name to you? I'm sure you met him on many occasions. Um, John Hume. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I played a clip on South East Radio News at 7 o'clock this morning. I think it was his daughter speaking about him, the fact that he was taken sometimes under blindfold and brought from one part of the country to the rest to deal specifically with the IRA. Your dealings with John Hume and his legacy in all of this, what are they, Brendan? Well, I've known John, uh, I knew John for very many years, uh, an extraordinary uh, individual, uh, very single-minded and focused. Uh, People used to criticise him for having a single transferable speech, but that speech was always peace, non-violence, reconcile differences um, by negotiation, not by coercion. Uh, And that message was very hard to sell uh, in Northern Ireland, but he won so many friends and allies. And I think, uh, perversely and in the context of Brexit now, uh, he became a member of the European Parliament. And he, if you like, brought Europe to understand that in our time, one of the most important peace initiatives happening was in the, on the island of Ireland. And he, he, he got people to understand the significance and won friends across Europe. And of course, being involved in the European Union, it meant that Irish and British ministers were meeting every month and a better understanding developed. But as an individual, his courage was absolutely vital and pivotal uh, to everything that happened. And I, I should make mention of his wife, Pat, because she was his rock when he was being threatened, when the family were being threatened, when they were being bullied, 
uh, when, you know, it was a very dangerous and difficult position for him to maintain. Uh, they maintained it. And would it have been a difficult time when you were in power, as you say, you'd just got out of power when all this eventually came to yes. fruition, but would somebody like you, for example, would you have been threatened? Or, or, were oh, yeah. government ministers under threat from paramilitaries? Well, there's always a threat, and, you know, uh, uh, going back, I remember, even to Brendan Corish's time, uh, in the 1970s, I mean, I remember he had um, he had much more security than actually we had in our day. He always um, had two security cars, his own um, ministerial car, but also um, a secu- another security car with armed detectives, including you know carrying Uzi submachine guns. Such was the fear at that stage. Um, we didn't have that. We we did have armed protection um, as ministers uh, during the 90s. Um, Sometimes that was heightened. Sometimes we got advice on things, uh, places not to go and uh, things like that. Um, but, you, you know, we were generally um, safe in the South. Yeah. Uh, and on our visits to Northern Ireland, again, there was a protocol about how how we would go into the North, um, how we'd be, we, we would be met uh, and uh, the security that would surround that. What is the legacy of all of this now? Because, of course, we're currently at an impasse again. Is it teetering on the brink or is it rock solid? Um, where do you think we are with this now, on I this think it, 25th anniversary? I think those who sat around the table 25 years ago will be actually very frustrated at where we are 25 years later because the heart of the agreement was three strands, as you know, the internal strand um, unionism and nationalism in Northern Ireland, uh, the north-south strand, and then the east-west strand from the island of Ireland to Britain. But the heart of the first strand was power sharing on the basis of mutual respect. And unfortunately, that has been upset many times, and we have no power sharing right now. So when the President of the United States comes, Joe Biden, next week, he can't go to Stormont and see a functioning assembly. I think that's an enormous frustration. And I have to say, Brexit has been a huge disruptor of progress. Young people, you know, anybody obviously less than 25 years old have no recollection of the incredible difficulties that, uh, you know, were faced by everybody in Northern Ireland. You would recall even crossing the border, there was a sense of fear and trepidation. I remember going across Ochnacloy on several occasions. I'd been absolutely petrified. Petrified because we're not used to people pointing guns at us, as happened. And, you know, you're fearful and you're going... Um, into the main shopping areas of any of the... Uh, I can give, me, give you an even better one, Brendan. I was broadcasting for 40 years ago and a bomb went off in a building beside me. So that's how, how real it really? was. And I knew the tension that people were living under. So it's, it's really remarkable when you think of it. Well, to have an end to that really gives us a responsibility in our time to actually ensure that that is worked. Yeah. That the framework that was there is actually developed. Right. That the institutions that are there both the internal institutions in Northern Ireland, that is the uh, the Assembly and the Executive, are functioning, but also the North-South institutions. Some of them, I chaired one of them for five years, the special EU programme bodies, which is the body that oversaw the, dis- the spending of the peace fund and f- for cohesion money from Europe. And there were yeah. very significant funding that w- was aimed at bedding down peace. And I co-chaired that. Um, with the Minister of Finance of Northern Ireland, starting with um, Sammy Wilson, and the last of the four I had in my five years um, was Arlene Foster. Right. So, and I got to know all these people because of those interactions and the difficulties and their concerns. But we really do now. Right. We need to work those institutions for peace. 
because, you know, one of the sh- shocking things that I've read about in the last short while, there was an opinion poll in Northern Ireland and it said that there is now a majority of unionists who, if they were asked to vote on that referendum again, right. would vote no. Before we conclude, I want to just get an update on you on A, the eviction ban, and you were listening intently to the situation that unfolded in this program. My father, Peter McVeary, spoke to me on Monday, and then there was a, a, re- a retraction from him, and we also heard comments attributed to Antishak and also the Minister for Housing. Um, uh, but uh, j- just in relation to the, P, the, the Good Friday Agreement, Bertie Hearn, yeah. uh, he, his name causes a lot of division even still. But my lasting memory of the Good Friday Agreement is that man went to that agreement on the day his mother was buried. That's right. And I mean, for that he must be honoured. Oh, absolutely. Um, nobody can take um, the achievements away from Bertie Hearn on that day. Um, he was pivotal. I, I, I said that the influence of George Mitchell was pivotal. The fact that, if you like, the stars aligned with having a supportive president in the United States a willing um, Prime Minister in, in Tony Blair in Downing Street and a very competent, able negotiator in Bertie Ahern who had the trust of the people of Northern Ireland as well as the people of the Republic. Now, I would have many criticisms of, of the flaws of um, Bertie Ahern, but it will be to his eternal credit the work he did in the build-up to the the finding of an agreement that has sustained peace and saved lives okay. for a quarter of a century. Before we conclude our chat with you this morning, and uh, you're here predominantly to look back on this uh, 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, in relation to the eviction ban mm. and what unfolded on this programme on Monday when Father Peter McVeary spoke to me and felt that uh, the Taoiseach had overridden the Minister for Housing. He has since retracted that, and uh, Father Peter McVeary is a regular contributor to this show, and I'm, I'm not going to go back into why or why not, but you, you, were, you were observing this from the outside looking in. What do you make of what you heard from all parties? Well, I said two things. Firstly, I need to say the eviction ban, I think, is the worst decision this government has made. And that will be seen in time to be the worst decision. All of us in politics are dealing with the immediate aftermath of that, but we're only at the beginnings of it. And I think Peter McVeary's commentary to you in relation to that matter, uh, that we will see a tsunami of misery, is right. Um, because not only are those who are faced with eviction, and the government apparently knew that there was 9,000 people facing eviction because those figures were given by the Residential Tenancy Board to the Department of Housing before the decision. Um, Now, that's 9,000 notices last year, 9,000 families or individuals, and they're all anxious right now. Some of them, many of them will be sorted, but some won't because there is no available accommodation and we're all struggling desperately, county councils, politicians, to deal with that. And we needed a safety net in place. And the the government, I think, disastrously has removed that. But to deal with the the issue, because I I mean, I listened, obviously, like everybody else, uh, to your riveting programme when he said that. Uh, And it's a difficult one to address. Um, My, if you like, rationalisation for myself, having served so long in government for more than a decade, is that the government, in all its decision-making, under the Constitution, acts collectively. In other words, once a decision is made, it must be owned collectively by every member. So, I suppose, in that sense... Whatever the internal dynamic of the government was, whoever was for it or against it at the time of discussion, 
once the decision is made, everybody owns that decision. The Minister for Housing owns it, the Taoiseach owns it, everybody owns it. The only way that, you, you know, you don't have full responsibility and collective responsibility under the Constitution for every decision of government is if you resign and say, no, this is a bridge too far for me, I'm not going to do it. Okay, so is there a line drawn under this? Will people move on now, do you think? I think or? that uh, listening to, to, to Father Peter McVary, and I think there's nobody in the country who would not regard him as a man of great honour, a man who has done so much uh, for vulnerable people. Um, I think that what he'd want to do and what all of us must do now is focus on the issue that he wants, wanted to highlight and that is that we must desperately find solutions for those who are facing homelessness. We must build more houses. Right. Uh, and, you know, I went into the last general election on the basis that we, ne- we needed um, the same focus um, on housing as we, uh, as we did during right. the economic collapse that we would de- deploy the full resources of the state in terms of money to build p- social housing on public land. That needs to be done. It's going to be an interesting public meeting or council meeting next Tuesday. I'm looking forward to that one to hear how it's going to be discussed. Before we conclude, update in Wexford General Hospital. I have to be honest with you, one or two people have come to me, uh, one in particular with a former pedigree in the area, now retired, said keep a watchful eye. Yeah. They're, we're hearing the word reconfiguration. The longer it goes on when we don't have a fully functioning A&E, people will be worried. You're, you're watching this closely, as you've done before, and other members of the Oireachtas as well. What's happening, Brendan? Well, I'm banging I, that drum, and yeah. I made it crystal clear. Are you worried? Are you worried that we could have a reduced uh, A&E, or, or do you think that I, we, we're going to get a fully I'm, functional I'm, one? I'm taking the administration of the hospital, the senior administrators in the HSE, the word of the Taoiseach, the word of the Minister for Health, who all assured me that the full A&E in Wexford General Hospital will, will be restored as quickly as possible, bigger and better than ever before. Now, if they don't deliver on that word, by God, there will be one hell of a row. Um, But the the difficulty is right now is uh, I I listened to others in terms of this weekend. This weekend is going to be a very pressured weekend for A&E in every hospital. I know from talking to constituents of my own who had to go to Waterford uh, for A&E treatment that it is packed to the rim. They're under enormous pressure there and we unfortunately are adding to that because we don't have our own facility here. Um, I'm desperately worried. Some of the pressure has been taken off by the medical uh, treatment unit, medical assessment unit and the small injuries unit that is operational in Wexford General but we really, really, really need to have our own A&E back. And all of us, I think, in public life in Wexford will be banging the drum day in and day out until we see that fully back. I know the builders are in. I I know the work is underway already. Um, I pointed out to the Minister that there are emergency powers under the Planning Act. Privately, I spoke to him and he told me that he would exercise those powers. Um, I've spoken to the planners in Wexford County Council and and the Chief Executive. Everybody will give 100% support to to achieving the full uh, operation of Wexford General as soon as possible. And realistically, are we talking, Dr Youssef said possibly four to six months at the bare minimum, but there are rumours that it could even be longer. And and, uh, we we don't want to be causing fear amongst the county, but we have to keep the people informed. No, I think think that would be um, the outset of the, the time frame involved. I asked the administration directly here, could it be even brought in on a phased basis? Yeah. Uh, re- open the a and 
And they are reluctant to do that for understandable reasons because what they've said to me is, if we're open, the people of Wexford will rally to it and will arrive. And if we haven't got the full facilities, in other words, the full 220 beds that Wexford General Hospital has, operational and available, there's no point in taking people in through A&E if we don't have beds uh, downstream to help them. But we need to get those back in operation ASAP. Southeast Radio's Morning Mix. Chat, news and your views. Alan Corcoran.